and welcome to the Nursing Podcast. This is Landon and Monique. Again from my kitchen. Again from the kitchen. <laughs> the kitchen of knowledge. Yes, exactly. Today we are going to talk about anaphylaxis. Yeah, so the reason we were talking about this is that Landon and I just attended the NINA conference in April in Edmonton. And uh, one of the presenters was Dr. William Hampton from the United States. And he was talking about anaphylaxis. And he was mentioning how Canada has taken the lead on anaphylaxis treatment and prevention. And we're going to include the website for Anaphylaxis Canada for you to look at. There's a lot of great information on there. And we found it quite interesting, this topic, and in Landon's case, quite timely, as um, he's going to tell us about a patient that he attended to recently. So just a couple of little notes of interest. Um, Anaphylaxis Canada is a national registered charity that was started actually in 2001 by a, a small group of people living with food and other allergies. And statistically, about 1 in 25 people are affected by food allergies, and that doesn't include those at risk for insect stings, medication, latex, or exercise-induced anaphylaxis. And it is interesting, as there's been a lot of discussion about whether an increase in food allergies is one of the first world problems. When I was growing up, it was unheard of that children couldn't bring peanut butter sandwiches to school. I think I would have starved if I didn't get peanut butter. I know, butter. I sure would have. I know, exactly. Peanut butter and jam Monday, Wednesday, exactly. Friday, bananas Tuesday, Thursday. Exactly. Yeah. But now there are bans for all types of peanuts in schools, on airplanes, etc. And interestingly, there's a physician by the name of Dr. Scott, uh, I, can, I don't know if I can say his name, Sachire. A professor of pediatric and chief of the Division of Allergy and Immunology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center's uh, Jaffe Allergy Institute. That's a long business I card. know, <laughs> isn't it? He did a random survey in 1997 and again in 2008. And he found that in 1997, there was one in 250 children who were allergic to peanuts. And in 2008, the number had jumped to one in 70. Hmm. There were similar studies and results shown in Canada, the UK, and Australia with hay fever, asthma, and eczema also on the rise. So it's kind of interesting to say why are we now having so many allergies? And therefore, if you have more allergies, certainly much more prone to anaphylaxis. And one of the leading theories about the rise of allergies is the so-called hygiene theory, which says that we're way too hygienic. There's been so many changes in our environment. We have cleaner water, fewer parasites, and the use of antibiotics. Everybody's got one of those cleaning pumps. Nobody actually touches anything anymore. But the theory is that it actually has resulted in changes in our body, specifically to our immune system. And according to this theory, the immune system can't find anything harmful to attack, so it mistakens harmless food protein or pollen or cat dander for something invasive that needs to be attacked. So, Kind of like the military eventually needs to exercise. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. There's also another theory that the Western diet has made the people more susceptible to developing allergies and other illnesses. There was a very, very small study done in Florence, Italy, where they compared the gut bacteria in children from Florence and children from um, Africa. And they found that the variety of flora was substantially different. There was a decrease in the richness of gut bacteria bacteria and Westerners as compared to the ones in Africa and it may have something to do with the rise in food allergies. There's actually another, there's so many theories, there's another theory that states that humans lack vitamin D because we spend more time indoors 
and that we use so much more sunscreen when we're outdoors that our vitamin D deficiency has jumped in the past 15 to 20 years. And it seems it is more certainly common in northern climates compared to the south where people are generally outside more. Although we've had such a lovely summer and spring here, um, it doesn't feel like that at the moment. And then the other uh, working theory is that babies are getting too much folate. So roughly in the last 20 years, pregnant women began supplementing their diets with high levels of folic acid, which was shown to protect against spinal cord defects. And this increase in folic acid may be contributing in some way to the rise in allergies, although nobody really uh, knows exactly why. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's kind of let your kids run around, maybe get some dirt in their mouth. Maybe they should be eating all sorts of different foods. Maybe we should be out in the sun. Lick the floor in the emergency department. And then maybe, you know, have a balanced diet and all of those things. And there are certainly some theories about introducing peanuts earlier in in kids. And and certainly it's a topic for another time, but it is kind of interesting about allergies. But I really think that the real reason that we're talking today is, while it's all interesting about why we have a raise in um, allergic reactions, I think that there should be much more of an awareness because we are seeing much more anaphylaxis out there. And one of the first things that we as health professionals should be doing is to recognize severe allergic reactions, particularly when they come into the emergency department. So I think this is a great segue. Well, it is. You tell us it, about your case, Landon. It definitely is. So this was a, a, a young female. I was working uh, in, the, in the pre-hospital realm, mm-hmm. and a, we get called to a public area for a... Uh, female with abdominal pain Mm -hmm. and arrive to uh, find the police doing the frantic uh, arms overhead wave which in this area they're typically more used to seeing sick people so instantly we were thinking wow this is more than we were sold Mm -hmm. so we walk in and the story is that uh, she was reported down and had to be carried uh, to a safe place by the police officers and that she's not really waking up which is is an odd presentation for a, a she was about 30 28 to 30 year old female uh so we approach her she, she's well dressed she looks put together she and all i notice from across this uh area is that she looks like she died yesterday oh dear and instantly my partner and i looked at each other and and there's just this unspoken language amongst uh, pre-hospital folk Mm -hmm. where he just knew that this means uh, we're not going to stay here very long. Uh, So I walked up to her and she had no radial pulse. She was sweaty and pale as anything. And instantly my hand went to her abdomen. Right. (laughs) Because a 30-year-old who looks like they died yesterday is either a ruptured ectopic, a ruptured appendix. It's it's all abdominal. Absolutely. And so... uh, I got the the good old tunnel vision and I'm screaming at her saying, does it hurt here? Does it hurt here? And within about 20 seconds realize she's, she's waking up enough to answer my questions, but I'm in a public area. I'm not going to be doing surgery on her here. So let's just get out of here. It doesn't matter what she ruptured. She ruptured something. So it, it was a busy public area. The police were helping us kind of define a perimeter. And my partner who was, uh, standing back, just mentioned to me off the cuff as he was getting the stretcher ready he said do you think that's a hive on her face and as the the world comes back into focus from the tunnel vision that you get Mm -hmm. with these sick people I noticed that 
She's maybe not necessarily pale as much as she is one large hive. Oh my goodness. And and this hive was pale. It was a white kind of raised area that kind of took on her whole face. And wow. so I went back over and, and woke her up enough to say, are you itchy anywhere? Now, she was not the best historian right. uh, to start with. This could have been <laughs> a lot easier had she given me the story up front. Right. Uh, and she said, yes, I'm itchy everywhere. Oh. And so my partner said, do you think this is an allergic reaction? And I said, well, it could be, but I've never seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. So we decided, well, if it's a ruptured abdominal organ, there's not much we can do. Right. Treat her with a bit of fluid. Uh, and if it's an allergic reaction, maybe we can treat that. It's not going to hurt her abdominal uh, problem. So started a line, and I thought, I, you know, I'm a good old eMERGE nurse. I thought, oh, my goodness, epinephrine in someone who's not on a monitor. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, a little scary. It's, it's a little scary. It, yeah. it, it, we'll learn it's a sacred cow that needs to die. But yes. it was a little scary for me. So I thought, well, I'll give her some Benadryl. Benadryl never killed anyone. So I gave her 50 of Benadryl. Uh, liquid so it would absorb quickly loaded her on the stretcher went on the way to the hospital her pressure was 60 over 30 wow Uh, sorry let's let's qualify uh so i stood her up walked her over to my stretcher and then proceeded to get to the ambulance and (laughs) there we go to the hospital which is about a seven minute drive away uh about halfway there in in morning traffic uh not progressing as quickly as we would like uh, i finally thought well if I give her epinephrine now, by the time we get to the hospital, if anything's going to go bad, we'll be at the hospital. So I gave her um, 0.3 milligrams IM of epinephrine, mm-hmm. um, got to the hospital, and uh, basically gave them an unknown problem that in the end, four hours later, six hours later, when we went back, uh, was diagnosed as anaphylaxis. Wow. Uh, she did go home with an EpiPen and was kind of one of those interesting cases that um, actually all of us kind of discussing it went, wow, we don't think we would have yeah. necessarily gone there with that. Do we know what the allergy was? Was she on some new medication or had she eaten so, something? So or? history is everything. Right. And so in my my very loud attempts to stimulate her enough to get a good history out of mm-hmm. her, she had taken an antibiotic that morning oh. of which, uh, for query UTI, Wow. She had them left over from last time she had a UTI, and she stopped taking them last time. She didn't finish the dose because every day when she took it, she would get more itchy. Oh, for heaven's sake. So after, of course, after, you know, 20-some minutes of, of trying to treat, transport, and get a good history, you kind of show up to the hospital, and the staff there look at you like, well, this makes total sense. What are you thinking? And, exactly. And I always say, if you weren't on the call, don't criticize. But, <laughs> but the yeah. reality is, yeah, it was most likely an antibiotic allergy that was getting worse and worse. And this time, yeah, it was it became an anaphylactic reaction. Do you know what's kind of interesting to me, though, Landon? Because in my head, you know, when you were talking about a good old eMERGE nurse, in my head, every time I think about anaphylaxis, I think the the first thing we all think about is the airway obstruction, right? The lip and the tongue swelling, the respiratory issues, and then the hives that we notice. But I right. think we more often think about those symptoms, and we kind of miss the GI symptoms quite often. Uh, perhaps it well, might be exactly. good for you to kind of so, so with this talk about with this that. patient, her airway was fine. She mm-hmm. had no lip swelling. Her she had no trouble swallowing. No voice change and. And, and that was where I was going, was yeah. thinking, well, it's not anaphylaxis. Her throat isn't closing up. Yeah. There's no impending doom here. I'm not worrying about managing her airway right away. 
And so this obviously can't be anaphylaxis. So in, interestingly enough, there's an actual definition of anaphylaxis and, and you know, we both work in very large, busy places. Mm -hmm. When we saw this definition of anaphylaxis, it took us by surprise. It so, did, didn't it? So, yeah. so it became a podcast, which is typically where most of our topics come from. So uh, let's define anaphylaxis. And, and there's kind of three, three kind of categories that we do. So one is the exposure and airway problem. Right. That is the classic, I was stung by a bee, my airway's closing up. So that is one form of anaphylaxis. And that form typically is from an injection source. So that's why the bee stings oh, okay. tend to present more with that, that kind type of thing. Of, okay. Then there's the second kind of type of anaphylaxis, which is impact to two body systems, two or more body systems. And those body systems are skin, makes sense, mm -hmm. respiratory, so coughing, wheezing, uh, GI, so nausea, pain, vomiting, that kind of thing. Cardiovascular, pale skin, weak pulse, dizziness, lightheadedness, you know, cardiovascular. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're all smart. And then they kind of class one as other anxiety, sense of impending doom, headache, metallic taste, uterine, uterine cramps. That one obviously is a little more ethereal almost, in, yeah. its, in its com components there. But but really, two or more of skin, respiratory, GI, or cardiovascular, it's anaphylaxis. So, yeah. so this patient, for example, had cardiovascular and GI symptoms. Absolutely. And I was looking for the closing up. And skin, up. too, really. And skin. Yeah. I was looking for the closing up airway, which yeah. was never going to come. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and she was presenting with three of the four body systems. So then there is the third type, which mm -hmm. is low blood pressure alone in oh, the okay. uh, in the presence of an exposure is also defined as anaphylaxis so you don't need anything but low blood pressure and exposure and we'll talk about why that's important as yeah. well so so that's kind of the definition so just to summarize that because we kind of chatted a bit is airway swelling mm -hmm. period two or more body systems of skin respiratory gi cardiovascular or cardiovascular alone with a known exposure so that really I know when we were at the conference, we, were, we weren't sitting next to each other. We were kind of sitting a couple of tables. I know we kept staring at each other going, oh, my God. <laughs> I know. Big light bulb moment, wasn't it? Well, especially yeah. for the combined years of experience amongst the two of us Absolutely. to not actually know this as well as we probably should. I think it's that recognition that I think sometimes we're expecting kind of the big drama. And so uh, this has been a great case, though. And it does really illustrate the six recommendations by the Canadian allergist. And, and it the recommends them in the way of how we should not have done this case. <laughs> exactly. I'll put it Which out is, there. <laughs> exactly. But that's the way we learn sometimes, right? And so let's, let's talk about those six recommendations. And the first recommendation is epinephrine is the first line medication that should be used. In actual studies of individuals who have died as a result of anaphylaxis, epinephrine was underused, not used at all, or administration was delayed. Excellent. And so, so why epinephrine is, is kind of interesting. Epinephrine isn't going to stop the allergic reaction. The allergic reaction is happening. It's happening. It's happened. It's going to keep happening. What epinephrine does is it's a rescue drug and it, it maintains support to the vital systems until that allergic reaction either ends or is controlled in another way. So, so what epinephrine does is constricts the blood vessels 
So it stops the microvascular leaking. You're not going to third space your fluid as much because mm -hmm. um, it is, it's a distributive shock, right? Absolutely. So like sepsis and you, you're putting the fluid in the wrong spot. So the epinephrine is going to stop that. Uh, it relaxes the airways and decreases the swelling in the upper airway decreases cramping of the GI tract. Again, it's that fluid shift. You're not putting all that fluid into the GI system. And it will help to block the hives and the itchiness, which isn't going to kill them. So it's not the reason you're not given the epinephrine. You're giving the epinephrine to restore cardiovascular support and stop that fluid shifting. Excellent. The second recommendation is that antihistamines and asthma medications must not be used as first-line treatment for an anaphylactic reaction. So this was where my light bulb went on. It was when <laughs> yeah. this, this physician who was presenting said that an antihistamine blocks a histamine receptor. And if the allergic reaction is already happening, the histamine receptors are already, have, are already being Locked. activated. Yeah. So you, you put an antihistamine in, there's nowhere for them to antihistaminize, if that's a word, <laughs> yes. because the allergic reaction is already happening. Happen. And so mm -hmm. I gave this girl 50 of Benadryl. And, and yeah, that would help later on for when the allergen maybe detaches from the receptor and wants to reattach, it can't. But the reality is at the time, wrong medication to give. Yeah, definitely epinephrine, no antihistamines during as a anaphylaxis. First, as a first-line first medication. Line. Yeah, it should only be used to treat hives or skin symptoms, but not anaphylaxis itself. And Excellent. down the road. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The third recommendation is all individuals who receive epinephrine must be transported to the hospital immediately, ideally by an ambulance, and they should have an evaluation and observation for an advised four hours. Yeah, so that, that's kind of the, the same adage as giving Narcan to someone who's taken heroin. The Narcan might be gone before the heroin is. Same thing here. The epinephrine, we know it's metabolized very quickly. And it's very common for people in anaphylaxis to require repeated epinephrine doses. So the symptoms could recur uh, depending on how they ingested the allergen, if it was injected or through the GI tract. It could be lingering for a long time. So mm -hmm. you need to watch these people if they've had epi. It, we shouldn't be scared of giving it. Yes. But when we do give it, we, sh we should keep them in someone's care. Uh, so ideally uh, paramedics in an ambulance and then that reaction could come back so for four hours we need to watch them and send them home knowing that even the next 24 48 hours although it's a very low incidence there is this rebound anaphylaxis that is discussed sometimes they just need to be aware that if this comes back it is anaphylaxis and they need to use that epinephrine auto injector that they just bought in step six exactly <laughs> Uh, so that's number three. Number four, uh, if, you, if you are transporting these people, additional epinephrine must be available during transport. Uh, and a second dose of epinephrine can be given within five to 15 minutes after the first dose is given if the symptoms have not improved. So that's a, a good thing, both pre-hospital and in-hospital is the order shouldn't just be mm -hmm. epinephrine one dose. It should be epinephrine one dose and PRN in the next 5 to 15 minutes if the symptoms haven't resolved. Now, if you work in a big place where the physician's 20 feet away, obviously you'll involve them in that. But if you are in a, in a remote or rural practice and you're phoning for orders, think ahead and get that second or third dose order at the time if, if you need it. Absolutely. Um, many, many RNs in Canada can manage anaphylaxis. It is within their scope of practice. 
to mm-hmm. manage anaphylaxis without an order period. So uh, that's for you to know is if you're an RN. Uh, number five is any individuals with anaphylaxis, this is the big one, who are feeling <laughs> faint or dizzy, unless they're vomiting or have airway issues, should lie down with their legs at the level of their heart. And you probably shouldn't stand them up and walk them to your ambulance stretcher. <laughs> I was going to say, but I didn't want to point fingers. Which I will say was only... Interesting. It's not like I walked her across the entire terminal. Uh, we, we walked her maybe three steps, which, you know, the, the alternative was we pick her up. Um, and, and she was awake enough that we could walk her. The, the interesting thing that this physician talked about was the fluid shift that that causes. And it's not just, oh, don't walk them because it's not a very nice thing to do. Was their third spacing all their fluid there may not be the circulatory reserve and when you stand them up all that fluid suddenly pools mm-hmm. and their preload drops to zero and that heart does not like beating with no fluid in it and they can arrest and it is one of the most it's the second most common cause of death in anaphylaxis first being airway swelling the second is this fluid shift yes. and boom one heartbeat arrest and they're in a pea or a systolic arrest, and you killed them. So uh, luckily this did not happen to this girl, and I can tell you right now, I'm, I tread gingerly on this now, and I'm seeing these patients. Absolutely. And the sixth one that I think is really important uh, is that no person should be expected to be fully responsible for self-administration of an EpiPen or an auto-injector. And I think that even when you were talking about that second dose of epinephrine, it is probably a really good idea for you to carry too. Because if you are trying to transport yourself or you don't have, uh, haven't called an ambulance and you're a distance away and you're still having symptoms, then you should be able to give yourself another one. And it's not just about you doing it. You need to have the responsibility of knowing um, your workmates, perhaps if you have a child, the teacher, the coach, whoever, should be taught how to do the epinephrine um, auto-injector. And there's even TV commercials right now on how to do use an EpiPen. So it is important that you don't just have one EpiPen, but have several of them, uh, one on, two on your people, on your person, perhaps one in your workplace, perhaps if it's a school, one in the school, that sort of thing, so that we ensure that we do have the epinephrine and it is, as it is the first line drug, that it is res- there. And we, if we are in an anaphylactic reaction, we may not be able to give it to ourselves. So the people around us need to recognize it, need to know how to use it, call the ambulance, and hopefully we'll save lives that way. And it's a great point. This this patient that I had would not have, had she known she was anaphylactic, she went down so quickly, she would not have been able to give herself her EpiPen. And so that's a, a great point. And I think probably a spot where emergency nurses could do a little bit of outreach education is, you know, slow night, a few patients around, why not pull out the Epi auto injector trainer, which mm-hmm. you can get from the companies for free and sh- teach people how to do it. Absolutely. So in summary, great discussion today, and we'll just go over the six things again. So remember, number one, epinephrine is the only first-line medication for anaphylaxis, and remember what the diagnosis is for that. Number two, antihistamines and asthma medications are second-line medications. Not saying don't give them, they're second-line. Number three, everyone who gets epinephrine needs to go to the hospital 
ideally by ambulance, and observed for four hours at least. Number four, you may need to give a second dose of epinephrine, be ready for it. Number five, anyone in anaphylaxis should stay laying down and don't get them up. And number six, people should not be responsible for self-administration of epinephrine. Get lots of auto-injectors, train all the family and friends. Yeah, Make friends. Make friends. Make friends. They'll save your life. Absolutely. And let people know that you do have anaphylaxis. It's not an embarrassment. So it is important for them to tell people around them, listen, I have this reaction. This is what I look like. This is where I keep my EpiPen. Yeah. And this is how you use it. All right. Well, that's it for this month. And we will see you guys again soon. Goodbye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursem.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursemCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursem Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. www.prneducation.ca